Speak, O Lord, and grant us understanding of your eternal truths, never changing, always there. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and open up your Bibles, yet again to Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Uh, first, just to explain the sermon title, did I not turn myself on? I did turn myself on. All right. I'm still paranoid. <laughs> um, so uh, the sermon title, A Christian Hermeneutic. Now, hermeneutic is not something that you use in everyday language. Um, Actually, there's a meme out there of, of pastors where, where it's a particular pastor, and it says the name Herman Nudic. Ain't ever heard of him. Uh, but a hermeneutic is a, a principle. Everybody, all of you, employ a hermeneutic in everyday life. You just don't know it. Uh, a hermeneutic is an interpretive principle. And we have different hermeneutics that we employ at different times. For instance, you have a different hermeneutic when you read fiction than you do an expositional essay, something trying to expose you to the truth. You think differently about those things. You also have a different hermeneutic when you talk to a beloved family member versus a stranger you meet on the, uh, when you're walking down the road or in the park. You employ different understandings to those different people. So, having a hermeneutic is a good thing, but it's important to know which hermeneutic you should be using at different times. So, uh, in the year 2000, which is 20 years ago, believe it or not, in the year 2000, uh, our denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, put to practice a hermeneutic when they, they, they uh, put in a request to change our doctrinal statement, our statement of faith, the Baptist faith and message. Um, and I just happened a couple months ago to watch the whole video of the Southern Baptist Convention, which by the way, convention, the Southern Baptist Convention, is when the Southern Baptist Convention convenes. Believe it or not, that's actually... When we use that phrase, we mean that we have convened. It is a convention, right? So when the 2000 Southern Baptist Convention occurred, there were essentially two opposing sides that were arguing back and forth. And I just happened to watch this video, um, and knowing the history of it, uh, which you guys don't, don't necessarily know, but, but there were two sides that had been kind of fighting for power in the Southern Baptist Convention. On one hand, you had a theology that was kind of newer, that was always trying to redefine terms um, and, and trying to push a particular agenda. And then you had uh, the, the older, which I don't mean old as in like aged, but I mean the more tried and true theology that, had, that, that talked about trusting the Bible wholeheartedly, knowing what it's saying, trying to figure out what it's talking about. And you had these two forces that were going against each other. And the, the, the second one was the one that was in power, but the first one was the one that was influencing. So the question was, which one were people going to hold to? And there was a change proposed to, again, our document, the Baptist Faith and Message, 
That change was to remove a sentence which had been misapplied and misinterpreted by the new group. Uh, and that sentence was this. The criterion by which the Bible is to be interpreted is Jesus Christ. And maybe you've heard this statement that Jesus, Christ, Jesus is my hermeneutic. That was, that was the phrase that was, that was blown around. Um, but this sentence was voted to be removed, and it was because it was misused. That sentence originally meant to be read like this. When we read the Bible... We know that the whole of Scripture is pointing to Jesus, that he is the mystery that God has been uh, waiting to reveal. That was the intention. All Bible points to Jesus. The whole Bible is about Jesus. But the way it had been being used is, well, I'll I'll illustrate that in a few minutes. But in in our convention, the way it works is that we convene, right, all amendments and items for voting and uh, different things are brought before the convention way ahead of the convention. So that way you can read it, you can make an argument, a counter-argument, you can send a messenger, like an ambassador for your church, that then gathers and there's a time of, of deliberation that happens and then all as one, everybody votes whether to affirm or deny that particular item. So uh, one, of, one of the statements that a Texas pastor used to, to request that this not be removed, right? So this is the newer party. This is the not good uh, hermeneutic party. But a Texas pastor made this statement. He said, uh, where am I? Just totally lost my thing. There we go. He said that the Bible is true and trustworthy but the Bible is still just a book. So, <laughs> so, so, uh, so that, that, was, that was one of the things, one of the arguments against. And so it was voted that this sentence be taken out because it was misapplied. Not that the truth wasn't there when you think about it rightly, when you interpret it rightly, but it had been interpreted wrongly. Um, that's why we have the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, as opposed to the 1968. Uh, that's why things have changed. Um, there's, there's a whole host of issues surrounding that change, too. Like, if you ever want to watch it, it's on YouTube. You can watch, like, the two hours of deliberation. And you sit there thinking, like, oh, my gosh, just end it. Like, why are people still arguing? But it was important. It was really, truly important. So what does that have to do with our text today? Well... Our text today is talking about essentially what Jesus thinks of the Bible. It's, it's, it's going, we're going to, to see whether or not Jesus looks at the Bible and says, ah, you know, it's true and trustworthy, but it's still just a book. We're going to be looking um, at, at what he thought in general hermeneutical interpretive principle, what Jesus would think when he read of Moses, of Isaiah, of David, and, and, and uh, along with that, when we read our passage today, it's going to tell us how we ought to think about Scripture. So, um, just as a sideline, there's certain lectures, and I say lecture, that have made an indelible imprint on my theology and character uh, that, 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 that I could bust out. Like if somebody were to raise a particular question about the sufficiency or reliability of Scripture, I could just like 
Like, all right, 45 minutes, give me 45 minutes, let me get a PowerPoint ready, I will boom this out and we'll go. This is one of those things, and I don't have a PowerPoint for that reason. Because <laughs> I don't want to do that to you, you poor loving folks. Anyway, uh, so let's read our text for today. It's Matthew 5, starting in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Um, all right, so Jesus here in this section is actually giving us what we would now call a transitional paragraph. He's shifting gears. He's moving from one topic to the next, and, and he's giving us that heads up. Uh, when, when Jesus is breaking from the Beatitudes, when he's moving into something new, he's, he's trying to give a, a, a heads up to his audience. Like, this, you know, this is a new thing. Let's look at a new thing. So his first declaration is that he has not come to abolish the law or the prophets. Not come. Not come to abolish. When I first started my Christian walk, I had some well-meaning friends that told me, listen, you know, this, the Bible's a big book, but the ones you really need to care about are the ones in the red letters. You ever heard that? Have you ever seen a, red a Bible with red letters? So, the, so when you, this became popular predominantly in the 1970s, and it's still popular today, but when you get a Bible, sometimes letters of Jesus, words of Jesus are printed in red ink to show them apart. Um, and... So I had some well-meaning friends that said, listen, you, you need to just, just read those red letters. Because I had a friend that told me to read the book of James first, read the book of James. And then I was like, now what do I read? It took me like 10 minutes. What do I read next? And so uh, these friends said, focus on the red letters. Read a gospel. You're going to see all the red letters of Jesus. So not knowing that you're, as a good Christian, you're supposed to read the gospel of John first. Uh, I read the Gospel of Matthew because it's first in the order. When you go to the New Testament, Matthew's the first book. So I read the New Testament, and then I come to Matthew 5.17, and he says, in red letters in my Bible at the time, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. So, wait a second. You told me to read the red letters, and those are the most important ones. And yet Jesus, in red letters, is telling me, no, 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 no. <laughs> Don't just read my red letters. Read the whole of it. You can imagine how surprised I was and how upset my friends were when I took that to them. <laughs> um, but it, it, it flies in the face of my well-meaning friends. And I'm sure you've heard that. Red letter Christians, it's, it's, it's a popular thing in terms of what popped out of the early 2000s. And red letter Christians was a response kind of to the Baptist faith and message 2000s change. Because at, at, at a very 
clear point, the Southern Baptist Convention, as the largest denomination in the world, made the statement that, 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 that Jesus is not my interpretive principle. The whole of Scripture is. And that, that got a lot of backlash, by the way, because, like, for instance, uh, Christianity Today, I think it was, posted an article at the time that said uh, the Baptists now believe in a quadrinity, the, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the Bible, as if we've deified the text. So, I think that it's important that we recognize that the abolishment of that sentence was, was, was a good thing, um, but Christianity Today got it wrong, that Texas pastor got it wrong. When Jesus says that, we, that he has not come to abolish the law and the prophets, he's telling his hearers what we're going to hear next in, in, in future sermons, where Jesus says, you have heard, but I say. That sounds like a rewrite, that sounds like an abolishment, that sounds like a, like a change, but that's not what, what, what the, uh, that, but he's not changing things. Jesus is not changing anything. So he's setting up his hearers to be prepared that, that he is not altering, he's pointing to the heart of, he's pointing to the core of. Um, so what is a Christian hermeneutic? Just raising the question again, what is a Christian hermeneutic? Does it focus on the red letters or does it focus on the black ones too? It should focus on all of them. The Bible is important to a Christian. Have you guys ever flown a kite? Some nods, yeah. When you fly a kite, you've got the kite that's floating on air. And we, we just spent some time at the beach, so I flew a kite. And when I say flew a kite, I mean I stood there holding it because Rachel handed it to me. It was like, don't let it come down. Okay, don't let it fly away. Okay. <laughs> so I just stood there holding it while my kids were having fun, and I'm looking there like a doofus with a, with a, with a big old butterfly. Anyway, <laughs> so, so, uh, so when you fly a kite, there's certain laws of aerodynamics that are in place. For the kite to be able to fly, you have to first have wind. Uh, you have to second have lift, so the air pressing underneath is pushing the kite up which is why when you hold that, that ring or that rod or whatever you're using, it's pulling away from you. But another thing it needs is the string. Now see, if I were to abolish the string, if I were to go and cut that string, that kite, by all laws of thermo or aerodynamics, that kite would come crashing to the ground. To the Christian, our, our string is the Bible. The kite is like our faith. If we ever, if we ever abolish or cut this book, we come crashing to the ground. We are no longer flying, we have dropped. To neglect this book, Jesus is saying, is to totally misunderstand his purpose. So Jesus, in verse 17, says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to... Fulfill them. Fulfill means it's future tense, right? So when Jesus is talking, he's talking about a future event. That future event is past for us. That was Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and now there's still a future tense. We're in the already, right? Jesus fulfilled it. 
but the not yet, Jesus is still going to fulfill some of it. But it's, it, this is important for us to remember because, um, as one scholar put it, the scriptures find their fulfillment, their intended goal and purpose in the life and ministry of Jesus. He is the one to whom they point. He is the one they predict and anticipate. Sounds kind of familiar, right? Like the intended understanding of that removed sentence? So, moving on to verse 18. Jesus says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or, or an iota, uh, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Um, all right, so some translations render this jot or tittle, which is a funny word. But a jot and a tittle are two strokes. The, it's an old English way of saying the strokes you're making when you're drawing a letter. The, 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 the jot would be maybe the loop, and the tittle would be maybe the accent. Like, for instance, if you're crossing a T, right? If you don't cross your T, it's not a T. So, uh, so, so what Jesus is, is saying is the stroke. The iota is actually a letter in the Greek. It, it looks like this. That's it. That, that's it. I'm doing it from your angle, too, so it goes like that. The iota is used as an accent on different words. It sits underneath the accent. That's almost, it almost looks like a dot. It's the smallest letter when somebody's writing in Greek. And then a dot, actually in Hebrew, too, and, and in, uh, in, in Greek, it's, again, a single little teeny boom that counts as an accent that tells you how to pronounce a word. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying that not a single facet of, my, of, of the law can disappear until all is accomplished. Not a single portion of this book, friends, will pass away. God has preserved his word because he cares about what he said. He has protected this book. And this could jump me down an alleyway of talking about the King James Version and the deleted verses and all that stuff. I'm not going to go down that road. That's, a, that's one of my lectures with PowerPoints another time. But, <laughs> but, but God has promised, Jesus has promised that none of this will go away until it is accomplished. Again, Jesus is pointing future tense. So what does he mean by accomplished? Well, law is actually pretty, pretty fun to figure out. Law, by its very nature, requires satisfaction. Think about the law of the land, right? Let's say you're speeding, Carl. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we had this conversation this morning anyway. So law by nature requires satisfaction. When you keep the law, you are satisfying the law, right? But when you break the law, it requires satisfaction by recompense. If you commit murder or thievery or, or, or whatever, whatever it is, you are required to pay a certain amount, whether monetarily, whether jail time, whether, whether community service. There's a requirement for recompense. So friends, the law of God requires satisfaction. <laughs> it goes up every time, right? Anyway. <laughs> so... So uh, Jesus is saying that there is something needed by the law. The law is demanding satisfaction. When God gives Leviticus 
and Deuteronomy, he's saying there's something that needs to be done about it. Something needs to be accomplished. The law and the prophets seek satisfaction. Prophets, through fulfillment, they speak of something future tense. Sometimes it's fulfilled past tense, but, but Jesus is saying, listen, that something needs to happen. And then he goes on to, to put that toward us, toward his listeners. He says in verse 19, he says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. The least of the commandments. Did you know that in Deuteronomy 22, verse 6, there are requirements on how to treat a bird's nest? There are some least commandments. <laughs> the Bible covers a lot of commandments, but, but think about what Jesus is saying. Whoever relaxes one of them, they are the least in the kingdom of heaven. Have you ever met somebody who says, hey, you know what, it's all, it, some sins really bad, other sins, you know, you can get away with them, right? Like, oh, it's, it's not okay to lie. Let's take one of the Ten Commandments. It's not okay to lie, but a white lie, that might help someone. The, whoever relaxes one of these commands shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So aren't we supposed to still be doing necessary feasts and sacrifices? Am I a couple decades behind in sacrificing bulls and goats? Should I have already made a pilgrimage or traveled to Israel to have partaken in the tax to the temple that's required? Am I not growing enough fruit to make first fruits? These questions, though not specifically, <laughs> will be answered in upcoming verses and forthcoming sermons. But, but I want to point out that that's not actually what Jesus is saying. He's not saying you've got to do bulls and goats. There was Old Covenant, there's New Covenant. I could be going through this in, in much more detail, but I want to just relax. No, I can't use the word relax. <laughs> but I want to give you a little rest in understanding that when Jesus says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, he's not talking, you still need to not be eating pork and shellfish, otherwise you're, you're sinning. You can't wear mixed fabrics. That's a Levitical law. Did you know that? So polyester cotton blend, sin. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but he's not saying that you can't do these. What he's saying is that you can't relax them and forget their purpose. See, Jesus is about to give us several topics. He's about to tell us several things that, that go to the heart of the command, not just the specifics of the command. True obedience start, starts in the heart and then flows into outward action. So are you truly obedient to God? Or are you just doing it because you gotta? For instance, not speeding. Carl's favorite. Uh, <laughs> but but if, if, if I sit there white-knuckled and grumpy, obeying the 25-mile-an-hour limit, am I truly obeying? No. Don't relax it. Don't sit there biting your tongue in order to be obedient because you're truly not being obedient at that point. That's one of the hardest things to get across to my kids. Rachel's picked up a phrase recently where she's like, listen, I can see 
that Jesus is working in your heart, but you're not really obeying mommy and daddy right now. Like we can see, we can see our kids getting sanctified. We can see God working in them, not just through our efforts, not through our discipline, not through any of that, but we can see when God is working and when they have surrendered to sin. But we can see when God is working on them, and we love that, we praise God for that. But we want to make sure that our kids understand that, listen, an obedient heart is a happy heart. Not always, not perfectly, but an obedient heart is what we truly want with our kids. So, uh, the, the, the truth of the matter here really is that we can't relax the, the, the core of the commands of Scripture. This is shown, actually, uh, in Acts 10. You don't have to choose there, or choose there. You don't have to turn there, but Acts 10, 9 through 16, Peter is given a vision of a sheet descending, and on it are all these clean and unclean animals, and, uh, and, and Peter... You know, uh, Peter is told by God, go ahead and eat. And Peter's like, no, 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 God, uh, uh, nothing. I've never eaten anything unclean. I'm clean. I'm not going to putrefy myself with these unclean things. But then God responds to him in verse 15. He says, what God has made clean, do not call common or unclean. So, we find out that that actually has to do with Gentiles. That's the purpose there. But God has actually called all food, all food clean later in, in Mark. I want to say it's chapter 9, verse 45, but I'm not sure. But the, but, but the point is that we are not bound to the specifics of Old Testament ceremonial law. But we cannot relax the real commands of Old Testament ceremonial law. So when you read Leviticus... You're supposed to be looking at it for the heart of the matter. When you read that you are supposed to repay someone you stole from, if you stole their bull and you take it home and it dies, then you have to both pay for the bull and also give them the, the meat of it. When you read those particular commands, or even the ceremonial ones, like a bull needing, needing to be gore, or, uh, bled out, what's that called? I'm, I'm thinking extinguished, but that's not what I mean. But what's, what, what is it when you bleed out an animal? What's it called? Kosher. <laughs> Making kosher. <laughs> when, that's the word I'm thinking of. I just can't think it in my... Exsanguinate. There we go. When you exsanguinate <laughs> an, an animal, when you bleed it out, that's required for the sacrifice of the bull. So I don't need to do that, but instead I can look at a, at a better fulfillment of that particular requirement. So true obedience, again, starts in the heart, flows into outward action. There's, when we read Old Testament law, we can recognize that there's some deeper longing, just like how all the prophets are prophesying of Israel being delivered. Deliver us, O God. Like the psalm we read this morning. Thank you, God, for delivering us. But what's going to happen again? They need to be delivered again and again and again. There's, a, there's an underlying issue lying under all those deliverances, and that's the true enemy of ours, which is sin. There needs to be a sacrifice that's going to renew and restore all that sin. The blood of bulls and goats never took away sin. Only Jesus did, but they showed something. They pointed to something. So when we're reading the Old Testament, we're supposed to be looking for what it's pointing to, and that's inevitably Jesus. Now, to finish verse 19, Jesus says, but whoever relaxes them will be called the least, and whoever... Uh, does not relax them, 
will be called great. Have you relaxed the heart commands of Scripture? Jesus is more concerned about the condition of your heart than the action of your hands. Always. Have you relaxed? Have you pretended like certain things aren't required? Now, before we go into the final verse, I want to set up a set up set up a mental picture. Um, the scribes were the smartest people in the world. The scribes knew all the laws. In fact, they were the people that would be told uh, the law. They would have the law dictated to them, and then they would transcribe it onto parchment to be distributed out to other synagogues. They were experts in the law. They were, they were lawyers, as some translations put it. But they were, they, they were the ones that knew God's law best. They knew it in their head. The Pharisees were a sect a group of, of, of a particular belief of, of, um, of Jews. So some scribes were Pharisees, and some Pharisees were scribes. There was interlap. Jesus is not saying that the scribes and the Pharisees, these two totally unmelded groups. But, but, the, but the Pharisees were famous for having 248 regulations and 365 prohibitions that were extracted from the law. Exhausting, Jack. I would be yawning too. Uh, <laughs> so, but 248 regulations, 365 prohibitions. And if there was a group that was among Jesus' crowd that would hear these words all the way up to verse 20, they'd say, oh, yeah, no, I, that's me. I'm the one who's great in the kingdom of God. And the Pharisees too would be, or the, the scribes too would be thinking, yeah, I know it all man, I try and follow it, and I'm good at it. Yeah, I've got this. I'm, I'm, the, I'm great in the kingdom of God. I got this. I'm good. <laughs> that would be the groups. They would be sitting there, and everyone else would be sitting there just broken. I have to follow the commands? I can't relax the commands? What hope do I have? How on earth could I, could, 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 could I measure up to these these two groups, I'm doomed. And then Jesus says, verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now I'm utterly crushed. I'm not a scribe or a Pharisee. The Pharisees walk down the street and cry, Woe, woe, woe is me, a sinner. And man, I just want to—I just want to get my farming done. I just want to finish my carpentry. I don't think about how I'm a sinner. It's not how I do. Love that phrase. It's not how I do. Anyway, but the common person is going to be broken with that. So, what does it mean to have your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees? Let me be clear here. God is not known by obeying his commands. But our relationship with God is shown by obeying his commands. And I realize there's some massive holes in that sentence. It's not an infallible sentence. Um, we grow in our relationship with the Lord by obeying his commands when he mercifully gives us strength to obey and then we repent of our sin. There's beauty in the midst of righteous actions. 
But righteous actions do not designate salvation. That's not what holds us. Because if we're just doing righteous actions, according to Jesus in verse 20, we are worthless vessels deserving for the trash heap, not the kingdom of heaven. So two things that this means. The answer to that question, how can my righteousness exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, is twofold. One, we must follow the law in our heart, not just our actions. True obedience. True obedience starts in the heart and flows outward, like a waterfall. It starts at the top and flows down. And then if you want to trace it even further back, the, wa the waterfall is coming from a river that's flowing down from a mountain. Friend, your heart is like a mountain. You need that to fuel the waterfall of your actions. We must follow the law in our heart, not just our actions. Otherwise, the oceans run dry. And number two, we must have a righteousness that exceeds ourselves. Because if I got to be more righteous than the guys that have 248 regulations and 365 prohibitions, my righteousness is doomed. Absolutely and utterly doomed. We need a savior. We need somebody more righteous than us. God actually promises that through Isaiah. In Isaiah 46, verse 13, he, he says, I bring near my righteousness, it is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. Listen, the whole Old Testament, throughout it all, there's a deep cry from God's people for God's deliverance, for God's rescue, because they are constantly disobedient, they're forgetful, they're prideful. You and I are just the same. We're supposed to be following the heart of the law, not just the mind, not, not just remembering it, not just showing it with our hands. We're supposed to have the heart of the law written on our heart. We're supposed to have the core of, of, of everything just working its way in here and then flowing outward. We're not just supposed to remember it like Bible memorization. We're not just supposed to just be able to pull out Bible verses for whatever, whatever cherry pick we want to do. And we're not just supposed to be doing outside works. We're supposed to be having it flow from a love. We need to be rescued in order to have our righteousness exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And God, in his incredible mercy, provided that for us in Jesus Christ. It's only through him that our righteousness can exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And then when we've received that salvation through Jesus Christ, that is when we live it out in gratitude. That's when we remember in gratitude. That's when we, we work in absolute and utter delight and joy of God. But it's only then. So what is a Christian hermeneutic? What is a Christian understanding and interpretation of the Bible? A Christian hermeneutic is where we interpret the Bible like Jesus, meaning we see it as factual, 
We see it as true. We see it as an inerrant, without error. We see it as inspired, meaning God brought it forth. He's the author. We don't, we don't read the Bible as, we don't, we don't read the Bible with a Jesus lens. We read, we, we, we see Jesus through a Bible lens. It's right here where we can see and behold the glory and beauty of God on earth. When we read these words, that's when we're able to see and delight in him. Listen, the, 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 the whole book that God has given us, he gave for us to know him. We live in a totally weird time where we can get the Bible in a million different ways. I summarized it to a million because that's, that's accurate. Uh, <laughs> but we can get the Bible in a million different ways. So, so we need to read it, recognizing that it all points to him, that the mystery of the Bible, which is how can I truly be reconciled to God when I'm such a sinner, the Bible sets as a foundation as the mystery of the gospel being Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says. The mystery has been revealed. What's that mystery? Jesus Christ is that mystery. Mm -hmm. As the Baptist faith and message puts it, the 2000, it says, the Bible is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. That's a Christian hermeneutic. That's the hermeneutic Jesus had, the hermeneutic he employed. So I, I, today I leave you with two implications. Two implications. If you remember nothing else, remember this. Read the Bible, all of it, and see your need for Jesus in every page. Yes, read Numbers. Yes, read Leviticus. Yes, read Deuteronomy about the bird's nest. Read it. And see that when you're reading it, 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 it it's testifying of your need for Jesus. I, have, I read the Bible once every year. I do a yearly Bible reading plan. Garnet was talking about how she read the Bible in, what, 60 days, 30 days? 30 days. 30 days. I ain't doing that. I'm sorry. <laughs> Four chapters a day times, nope, too many. So, <laughs> so um, but, but read the Bible every year. I can recommend two plans that I use. I love them. The McShane Bible Reading Plan, the Discipleship Journal Bible Reading Plan, I can print out things, check boxes, they're great. But also recognize your need for Jesus in every page. This is a children's book. And I try not to offend people when I meet people that are new of faith. I recommend this book. I say read this. Even when they're, I recommended it to a guy that was in his 80s. Um, I said read this children's book. Please don't be offended. And, and, um, the, I have this memorized, but I might as well just show the page. But in the introduction, these are the words that it gives. And I think this is something for us all to remember, and I'm going over time, I'm sorry. Uh, now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules, telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. If you want a book to read, borrow it. It's great. The Jesus Storybook Bible. Um, and then the second implication 
is seek God's righteousness. Don't try to be righteous on your own accord. Be righteous out of gratitude. Righteousness that flows from your heartfelt delight in God is that which will exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so glad that you held your word in such high standard that you've preserved it through, through thousands of years, through every, every desert storm, every single possible uh, flood or problem, you have maintained it and preserved it so that we can pick up a leather-bound or even pleather-bound book or paperback book and read precisely what you intended to have for us. Sometimes translations differ. Sometimes they, they say the same thing. And yet we can still, through the wonderful work of your Holy Spirit, discern what it is you're saying. Lord, help us to cling to that promise. May we love the fact that, that you did not come to abolish anything, but you came to fulfill it for us. In Jesus' name, amen. What is a Christian hermeneutic? A Christian is meant to interpret the Bible like Jesus, knowing that all the commandments are necessary for a righteousness reflected in the heart and recognizing that all the promises of Scripture are fulfilled in Jesus. Go in peace, saints.